going to start, uh, let's just start at verse 13. Now, when Jesus came into the district of Caesarea Philippi, he was asking his disciples, who do people say that the Son of Man is? And they said, some say John the Baptist and others, Elijah, but still others, Jeremiah or one of the prophets. He said to them, but who do you say that I am? Simon Peter answered, you are the Christ, the son of the living God. And Jesus said to him, blessed are you, Simon Barjona, because flesh and blood did not reveal this to you, but my father who was in heaven. I also say to you that you are Peter and upon this rock, I will build my church and the gates of Haiti will not overpower it. And I will give you the keys of the kingdom of heaven and whatever you bind on earth shall be bound in heaven. And whatever you loose on earth shall be loosed in heaven. Then he warned the disciples that they should tell no one that he was the Christ. Verse 21. From that time, Jesus began to show his disciples that he must go to Jerusalem and suffer many things from the elders and chief priests and scribes and be killed and be raised on the third day. Peter took him aside and began to rebuke him, saying, God forbid it, Lord. This shall never happen to you. But he turned and said to Peter, get behind me, Satan. You are a stumbling block to me, for you do not have, for you are not setting your mind on God's interests, but man's. Then Jesus said to his disciples, if anyone wishes to come after me, he must deny himself. Take up his cross and follow me. For Whoever wishes to save his life will lose it. But whoever loses his life for my sake will find it. For what will it profit a man if he gains the whole world and forfeits his soul? Or what will a man give in exchange for his soul? When the Son of Man is going to come in the glory of his Father with his angels and then repay every man according to his deeds. This is the word of the Lord. Let's pray. Our gracious God and Father, we thank you now and we come to you by your Son, Jesus Christ, and by the Holy Spirit who lives and resides within us. Please give to us strength this morning as we consider your word. Please give listening to our ears and believing to our hearts. Please give understanding to our minds and obedience to our feet and to our hands. Help us, Lord, to submit and bow our knee to you and to your word. And Holy Spirit, we ask that you would sanctify us by it. We thank you for all of these things that you have promised that you will do when we come to you in faith. I decrease so that you may increase, be glorified. For Christ's sake, we pray, and for the good of your people. Amen. Please be seated. Well, again, I do greet you in the name of our Lord and Savior, Jesus Christ. And this morning, we are concluding our short study of Christ building his church. The Lord has impressed upon me at least one more lesson or sermon that we will do next week before we move on and back into Genesis. But this morning, uh, we have come to the final of this uh, short series on Christ building his church. We've been considering these last two weeks the promise of our Lord Jesus Christ here in Matthew's gospel, that he will build his church, and that as he does, The gates of hell will not be able to overcome her. We've been trying to think together about what it means for the Lord Jesus Christ to build his church. We first considered, if you remember, that wonderful truth that Christ himself is the builder of the church. 
Christ is the builder of the church. We are members of his church. We are but servants in the building program of Christ. But it is the Lord Jesus Christ who is ultimately the designer and the builder of the church. The church, therefore, is exclusively in the hands of the builder, the Lord Jesus Christ. The church, therefore, exclusively belongs to Christ and no one other. I can remember some time ago, a person who used to attend this church when my father was alive returned for a visit and noticed all of the changes that had taken place. The person resolved after the service never to return to this church again because in their own ignorant words that was said to me, they changed Richard's church. I can't go there anymore. My dear friends, this church and all of the church for that matter does not exclusively belong into the hands of my father Richard or any other person. The church is not exclusively in my hands. The church is not exclusively in Pastor Isaiah's hands. The church exclusively belongs to her groom, to her master, the Lord Jesus Christ, and no one else. This is not my church. This is the church of the Lord Jesus Christ. This is not your church per se. This is the church of the Lord Jesus Christ. We considered last Lord's Day in these verses how Christ not only intends to build his church, but in the midst of building, Christ intends also to protect his church. Christ has laid down his life for his bride, as Paul says in Ephesians chapter 5. And he will see to it that no devil in hell, no demon, will be able to stop Christ as he draws his people to himself. Stop Christ as he readies us for his arrival. And stop him as he returns to bring us home. Just as he has promised. He who builds the church and who has protected the church down through the ages will make sure that he sees his church home. That no matter what demonic challenges the churches face throughout the history of, of the world, Christ has shown throughout the history of the world that he will not allow his church to relent. That he will not allow his church to bend her knee. That he will not allow his church to surrender. But that she will in every single circumstance advance. And the gates of hell will never, shall never be able to stand against her. To God be the glory. And now today, with God's help, we come to the third and final sermon in these studies of Christ building his church to consider how Jesus is the Lord of the church. That's our discussion this morning. That's our sermon for this morning. Christ is the Lord of the church. Of course, it is ultimately this that Simon Peter confesses when he says to the Lord Jesus Christ, you are the Christ, the son of the living God. In Simon Peter's confession, he's proclaiming, though through a glass dimly, the hazy understanding that he has been given by the Father about the meaning 
of some passages in the Old Testament that he presumably had known from childhood, but never had been able to make sense of. You know those kind of passages that you've been hearing all your life, and then all of a sudden a light turns on and it makes complete sense. Passages such as Psalm 110 which he will declare in his sermon on the day of Pentecost, where David says, The Lord says to my Lord, Sit at my right hand until I make your enemies a footstool for your feet. The Lord will stretch out or stretch forth your strong scepter from Zion, saying, Rule in the midst of your enemies. And there may have been other passages that began to race through Simon Peter's mind when the question was posed by the Lord, But who do you say that the Son of Man is? It was at this moment that Simon Peter was so privileged by the Father to be given the insight that Jesus, this Jesus, the Jesus whom he had come to love and to trust, the Jesus whom he had followed, the one whom he would follow, he said to his very death, was actually the very person who fulfills all of the Old Testament prophecies about the Messiah. This is exactly what Simon Peter is confessing when he says, You are the Christ, the Son of the living God. You are the Christ, the one that we have all been waiting for. You are the one the prophets of old were speaking of. And now you're here. Simon Peter will soon learn that Jesus is not only the Christ, the Son of the living God, but because he is the Christ, because he is the Son of the living God, he is also therefore Lord of all. That includes his church. Christ is Lord of the church. He is Lord of the bride with which he has purchased with his own blood. And you've heard that title before, haven't you? Jesus is Lord. What are we saying? When we say Jesus is Lord in our prayers, when we pray Lord in our prayers, what are we saying? When we sing, Lord, when we, again, pray, Lord, or confess, Lord, what are we actually saying? What does it mean for Jesus to be Lord of not just our lives, but your life? You who sit there in your seat this morning, you who say Jesus is Lord, what does it mean for Christ to be Lord of your life? What does it mean for Christ to be Lord of this congregation and every congregation that faithfully names the name of Jesus Christ? This morning, with God's help, I would like to consider four truths concerning the lordship of Christ over his church. Number one, Jesus Christ is Lord because he has purchased the church with his blood. If you're taking notes, Jesus Christ is Lord because he has purchased the church with his own blood. Verse 21. From that time, Jesus began to show his disciples that he must go to Jerusalem and suffer many things from the elders and chief priests and scribes and be killed and be raised on the third day. I wonder if you might be able to imagine this scene in your mind's eye. Christ has posed the question, who do you think I am? The disciples begin to answer, well, some have said Elijah, some have said Jeremiah, some have said you're one of the other prophets. And Christ rephrases the question, but who do you think that I am? What about you? Simon Peter confessed rightly 
Jesus, you are the Christ, the Son of the living God. And the Lord Jesus affirms Simon Peter's confession. You're correct. Exactly. That is exactly who I am. And God has shown you that. The Father has given you insight into who I am. And Christ declares that no devil will be able to stop him in building his church and that he should tell no one or they should tell no one who he really is. But then the Lord begins to pull back the veil and invite these 12 men into the mind and purposes and plans of God. He begins to tell them that as the Messiah, as the Son of God, he must go to the place of death. He must go into the lion's den, go into the place of opposition, go to Jerusalem. And it would be there that he would suffer many things at the hands of the religious leaders. And that eventually he would be killed. Imagine that. These men have left everything to follow Jesus. And Jesus is saying to them, yes, I am the Lamb of God who takes away the sin of the world. And here is how sin will be taken away. Let me pull back this curtain so that you can see what God's plans are. They did not have the New Testament to read as we do. They only had the Old Testament. And now Christ is making sense of for them of all of the Old Testament in just a few phrases. I will go and die. But he doesn't stop there, does he? He doesn't say that I'm going to Jerusalem and that I'm just going to die. And that will be the end of the story. But rather, he says, I'm going there. I will die. And if you can imagine being in the midst of that that little band of men there, then Christ is saying to them, perhaps near a blazing fire, I'm going to go and die. But then I'm coming back to life in three days. Can you imagine the depth of those those statements? They were, I'm sure, altogether too tragic and altogether too grand at the same time for their minds to comprehend. The one whom they have left everything to follow, whom they love with all their, of their being, says to them, I'm going to die. How altogether tragic is that sound? But I'm not done yet, and then I'm coming back to life. I think we sit here on this side of redemption and it doesn't phase us sometimes. But if you were standing amongst that group of 12 men hearing from the Lord Jesus Christ, I'm going to die and then I'm coming back to life. You've never ever heard anyone say that and mean it. And if they meant it, uh, they didn't have the power to fulfill it as Christ did. And of course, The very one who has made this positive confession is the very one who puts his foot in his mouth and says, Never, Lord, this shall never happen to you. The way the Bible describes it is also very interesting. Simon Peter takes the Lord Jesus Christ, the one who is the Christ, the Son of the living God, takes him aside. And the the emphasis or the picture is that he literally takes hold of him pulls him aside and begins to rebuke the one whom he has just said is the Christ, the Son of the living God. Uh, Rebukes him, reprimands him. You've been reprimanded at work, haven't you? I was in Albertsons yesterday and 
uh, I heard whatever name it was, Jimmy, to the front office, I need to see you. And sometimes you can hear a tone. Oh, Jimmy's in trouble. (laughs) Simon Peter did that to Jesus. Jesus, I need to speak to you. As a parent would a child to the Lord Jesus Christ. And what was Simon Peter arguing? Well, there was a number of things, but at least one of the arguments, one of the things that he's rebuking Christ for is that he had a disapproval or he disapproved of the way that Christ said he would build. Peter has made this positive confession and Jesus said, exactly. Children, if you are amongst your classmates or sometimes in your own home and you answer a question right, don't you sometimes look it around and say, I got that question right. When you're in class and you know the answer and you want to be the one who says it first. So that you can be, and though everyone is raising their hand, you want to be the first one to say it so that you can be the one who said it. Simon Peter has said it. And Jesus said, exactly. Right now you are first in the class, Simon Peter. But just as quickly as he is first in class, he becomes last in class. Simon Peter puts forth a rebuke because he does not approve of the way that Christ said he would build. Christ said that the way that he would build was through a perfect obedience and a sacrificial death that would ultimately result in a glorious resurrection. The death of the event or the the death of Christ, though, is the event that belongs in the greatest of tragedies in human history. It is the greatest tragedy in human history. It is the, the greatest injustice, may I say this, in human history. It is the, the greatest injustice in all of human history. Christ dying on the cross. Why? Because he is the only one who has ever died, who has ever been innocent of any crime. He is the sinless one who has gone to the grave. On behalf of those who have sinned. It is the greatest injustice. And yet. As heinous as this act was. It was within the perfect divine purposes and plans of God. Jesus says this. It was so that he might be glorified. And that he might bring many sons to glory. This was the plan of God. Without the death and resurrection of the Lord Jesus. It would be possible, impossible for the Lord to be the Lord of the church because there would be no church for him to be Lord of. As the apostles, in particular Simon Peter, later will begin to reflect with the help of the Holy Spirit on the inner significance of what Jesus had said, it began to dawn on them what these words meant. And you will remember, remember how Simon Peter puts it in 1 Peter chapter 1. Uh, go there, please. 1 Peter chapter 1. I'm going to do my best. My son, the other day, I, I asked him on the way home, what did you learn today, son? He said, trying to think of something. Well, Dad, i got to be honest with you. You talk too fast. I didn't get a lot out of that. And I said, I'll try to talk slower next time, son. Verse 18, First 1 Peter 1.18, knowing that you were not redeemed with perishable 
things like silver or gold from your futile way of life inherited from your fathers, but with the precious blood as of a lamb unblemished and spotless, the blood of Christ. For he was foreknown before the foundation of the world, but his but has appeared in these last times for the sake of you. It's just a, a frequent note that we found that we find being struck by the disciples that Jesus died in order to purchase the church for himself. And he purchased the church not with perishable things and not with silver and not with gold, but Christ purchased you. Let's let that sink in for a second. If you have placed your faith in Christ, Christ has purchased you with his precious, priceless blood. With his perfect blood, Christ has purchased you, which means that you are not your own. You don't belong to yourself. So my wife was speaking to someone just the other day about slavery. Someone had a question about slavery in the Bible. It seems to be a hot topic right now. And my response to her is, whether that person knows it or not, he is still a slave. You are either a slave to sin, Jesus says, or you are a slave to righteousness. You may hate the idea and, uh, the idea and the act of slavery here in the Americas was heinous. But slavery exist whether you like it or not. You are either a slave to Satan or you are a slave to Christ. Who do you belong to? You either serve a good master, the Lord Jesus Christ, or you serve a taskmaster, devil and all of his angels. Who do you belong to? Because let me say to you, you are not your own. You are either in Adam or you are in Christ. You are in sin or you are in righteousness, but you belong to someone. As Bob Dylan said in that old song, you've got to serve someone. The Lord Jesus Christ purchased you by his blood. You belong to him. And don't you often feel the, the tug and the pull of your old master? Don't you often feel the pull of feel that the tug and the pull of sin that used to be your master, sin that still desires to purchase you or to have hold of you, but you don't belong to sin anymore. You've been made a new creation. You are no longer in that darkness. You are in light. So as much as you are tempted, you must remind yourself you belong to another now. You belong to Christ. You are in the beloved. Satan may show you temptations. The flesh may sometimes desire those things, but you do not belong to them any longer. You belong to Christ. Remind yourself when you are tempted, I've been purchased by Christ. Sin shall, shall not be master over me any longer. It's a daily reminder, isn't it? It's a daily reminder of, of our souls. You belong to Christ. You are in Christ. And it's very interesting that as this passage goes on, the very thing that Simon Peter struggles against that makes him so uncomfortable is the very thing that we've just discussed. The teaching that Jesus dies in order to purchase the church for himself. 
so that he might be the sole owner and Lord of the church. And if you are in Christ, you are a part of that church. When we think of church, don't just think of all of this grand building. No, think of you. You are a part of the church that is one part of a whole. And if you are in Christ, you belong to him. And Christ purchased you. You are owned by Christ. And the reason why Peter struggles is the same reason why we struggle. And it's because the implication is that Jesus is our owner. He has purchased us. He's paid the ransom price for RBC. The implication is that we are his. And that we are his without reservation, without qualification for him to do exactly with us as he pleases. That's the struggle. If you belong to Christ, then he does with you exactly as he pleases. Even if that means what is being done with you is at times uncomfortable. Difficult. Stretching. In our first week, we considered how uh, Peter refers to the church in his epistle as living stones being built together as the master mason chisels them into their rightful place. And Peter had some sense of what this would mean for him, didn't he? It would mean that the Lord of the church could choose any stone, any stone he he pleased, and chisel it in any way that he wanted in order to put it it exactly where he has decided decided to place it, to, to mold it and to shape it. Exactly in the way that he has intended for it to look and to be. If Christ has purchased the church, and he has, then this would mean that Peter then belonged to Christ. It would mean that he was no longer number one among the disciples. It would mean even that Christ might call him to a lowly place in order to humble him. Peter is conscious of what this lordship of Christ is really going to cost Peter. What does it cost you for Christ to be your Lord? What relationships has it cost you? What friendships has it cost you? What social life has it cost you? What jobs has it cost you? I said to my son the other day who loves baseball, what if you became a baseball player and you had to have a baseball game on the Lord's Day? Which would you choose? The millions that baseball will pay you? Or attending Lord's Day worship? You're still getting paid, but in a completely different way. There is a blessing being given to you, but in a completely different way. What does Christ being Lord of your life cost you? Ask yourself this. How much of your life is Christ Lord of? It's the great issue, isn't it? The great central issue of our following Christ is that you, we belong to Christ. Yes, we call him Lord. Yes, But can he do with your life whatever he wants to without any reservation from you? 
You know what a reservation is, don't you? You don't just, for, for most hotels, good ones at least, you don't just show up and say, give me a room. You need to at least let us know you're coming. We'll make space for you. That's a reservation. Do you do that with Christ? You need to let me know first what you're going to do before I say you can do it. Or is he able to do whatever he wants with you without any resistance from you? Let me say to you, I'm with you in that resistance is my natural inclination. I naturally resist. I naturally say, I don't like this. Is there some other way? But if we are to be whom Christ has made us to be, then we're going to have to allow him to shape and to mold us and to endure the resistance or to endure the difficulty. To ask Lord, the Lord to help us to stop resisting in spite of how difficult the molding and shaping may be. And let me ask you, let me also encourage you on this. Don't resist in private, but pretend that you're not resisting in public. Because then Jesus says that you're a whitewashed tomb. You know what a whitewashed tomb is? It's one where you would go to a gravesite and see it looks great. What a beautiful gravesite. Wow, they made a really beautiful gravesite for this person who's dead in there. Don't be that person. If you are wrestling, then tell someone I'm wrestling. If there is resisting going on, tell someone in the church I'm resisting. If there's difficulty in stretching, tell someone because that's why Christ has also joined us together so that we might encourage each other as we are together, as Pastor Zadie said a minute ago, walking hand in hand toward the celestial city. If you need strength and encouragement as you are wrestling, remember we're all wrestling and we all need each other. Jesus is the Lord of the church because he purchased it at the cost of his death. Secondly, Jesus is the Lord of the church because he expands it through the proclamation of the gospel. Jesus expands the church through the proclamation of the gospel. Look at verse 18 and 19. <clears throat> I also say to you that you are Peter, and upon this rock I will build my church, and the gates of Hades will not overpower it. I will give you the keys of the kingdom of heaven, and whatever you bind on earth shall be bound in heaven. Whatever you loose on earth shall be loosed in heaven. There has been, concerning this verse, much ink that has been spilt through the ages over this verse. Without delving into all of the weeds, let me say emphatically that the Lord Jesus was not calling Simon Peter to be the head of the church, and he is not calling Simon Peter to be the first and the first pope. Are we all together? Rather, this proclamation of our Lord is that on the immovable rock of Simon Peter's, here it is, confession that Jesus Christ is the Christ, the Son of the living God, on that confession, Christ would build His church. 
the keys of entrance into the kingdom of God are not hanging on Peter's belt. Rather, they are hanging from Peter's lips and every person who rightly confesses Christ as Lord and Savior. What is that confession? That Jesus is the Christ, the Son of the living God. That is the key to the kingdom. That is the key into the kingdom. They are words. They are a confession. These words that every person whose heart has been opened by God, the Holy Spirit, that they declare in repentance and faith. What is the key? That Jesus is the Christ, the son of the living God. Meaning, Jesus has not given the keys of the kingdom, this proclamation of the gospel, only to Simon Peter. Meaning, again, the keys don't exclusively belong to Simon Peter alone. We know this because the Lord Jesus uses this word quite often in chapter 16. It is you. If you're taking notes, use a very important word. Because the great debate is whether or not Jesus is speaking to you, Simon Peter, or to you, all of the disciples. Well, what is it? Does you mean Simon Peter or does you mean all of the disciples? You is all of the, all, all of the disciples. We know this because we see in verse 18 that statement being used by the Lord again in Matthew chapter 18. Let's go there if you would actually. Matthew chapter 18. We're, we're asking ourselves, is you just Simon Peter or is you all of, all of the disciples? Verse 15 of chapter 18. If your brother, he says, sins, go and show him his fault in private. If he listens to you, well, who is you? He's speaking to all of his disciples. You have won your brother. If he does not listen to you, take one or two more with you, so that by the mouth of two or three witnesses, every fact may be confirmed. If he refuses to listen to them, tell it to the church if he refuses to listen to them, tell it to the church. And if he refuses to listen to the church, let him be to you a tax collector or sinner. Truly I say to you, whatever, here it is again, whatever you bind on earth shall be bound in heaven. And whatever you loose on, the, on earth shall be loose in heaven. So then, who is Christ speaking to? Just Peter or to all of the disciples? To all of the disciples. The keys of the kingdom are therefore given into the hands of the church. The church is therefore the steward of the keys of the kingdom, not the owner of the keys of the kingdom. Christ is over the church and he has given his keys, these keys to his bride so that she might call all of his children to come to his table. And what are the keys again that you may ask? They are the confession that Jesus is the Christ, the son of the living God. I've said that like four, four or five times so that you can remember that. And it is by this confession that one enters into the kingdom of God. The church has been given authority, responsibility, with these keys, listen to these words, to bind and to loose confessors based upon that confession. How many of you growing up in church, if you ever have, have heard the phrase binding and loosing? I have. And let me say to you that the way binding and loosing was taught to me in the place that I grew up in, 
is not at all what God, Christ, meant by binding and loosing here. Binding and loosing, as I was taught, was binding Satan and loosing him from your life. That's not at all the meaning of binding and loosing. Binding and loosening, if one has been regenerated by the Holy Spirit, they will affirm this confession that Christ is Christ, the Son of the living God. They are therefore bound to the church and bound to Christ when they repent, when they place their faith in Christ, and they are baptized in the name of the Father, Son, and the Holy Spirit. They are bound to Christ. They are bound to the church. They are bound to the kingdom. If they do not have such a confession, they are loosed. Loosed from Christ. Loose from the church and loose from the kingdom. They do not belong. I hope that that's clear. It's very simple. The church declares or denies that when heaven or the church declares or denies that when someone is making a true confession, they belong to the church. When someone is not making a true confession, they do not belong to the church. And when the church declares or denies, heaven declares or denies. That sounds weird, doesn't it? When we have membership meetings and someone stands here before the church and they make a confession, they share with you their testimony and you say, yes, that is a true confession. That person is sharing the gospel. That person sounds like they are a believer. I will affirm their confession of faith. When we raise our hand in positive affirmation, it is, a, it is as though heaven itself raises their hand in positive affirmation and says, yes, they belong to the kingdom. Which is why when we have our next members meeting, we need to be very diligent in asking questions. Ridicule that person. Examine that person. Do they belong to Christ? Ask questions because you are making a confession saying, here's what heaven says about you. And how many times have we been wrong? I'll say to you more than once, more than once. And some of you know some others. You could say, I can name you more than one. It is so important that we examine the person who says, Christ, Jesus is the Christ, the son of the living God. Why? Because we have been endowed with the responsibility of the keys. Christ has said, church, here's the keys. Open the door for those who make a true and positive confession. And if we say, you don't need keys, just come on in. Then we are saying to those who actually do not belong to the kingdom that they are a part of the kingdom. And they have a false sense of salvation. Oh, I said a prayer one time. I walked down an aisle one time. Someone laid hands on me once upon a time. I'm a part of the church. And then you have these people walking around and saying, I don't need to be a part of any church. I am the church. All of these different false ideas because someone, some church, did not take proper responsibility with the keys. You look around and say, well, there's not a lot of people that are members of this church. You're right. Because it's not that easy to get in. It should be difficult for us to get in. It should be a way that we say, we examine and make sure this person is a true believer. It is uh, hard to get in. And also, hard to get out. 
Because the church will pursue you if you are in. They will chase after you. They won't allow you to live in sin. They will say, no, you are my brother. I have taken responsibility for you. I'm not going to just let you walk away. There will be no sneaking out of the windows here. And we see this, don't we? We see this played out in the book of Acts. Go there to chapter 2. Uh, consider how this takes place. In Acts chapter 2, we have Simon Peter taking his stand with the eleven, raising his voice and declaring the gospel. Brothers and sisters, what did Simon Peter declare on that day? Well, look at verse 16. That everything that the people were seeing on that day, that day of Pentecost, was a fulfillment of prophecy. Verse 22, that Jesus was from God, and that he worked signs and wonders. Verse 23, that Christ was delivered according to the plan and foreknowledge of God. This was God's plan. That godless men put him to death. Verse 24, but that God raised him up again, putting an end to the agony of death, since it was impossible for death for him to be held by death and its power. Do you see what's, what's being built here? Verse 29, that David was dead in his tomb, but that the tomb of Christ is empty. Verse 32, that God raised Christ from the dead. And verse 33, that he is now exalted at the right hand of God, that he has poured out his spirit on all who believe. Verse 36, therefore let all the house of Israel know for certain that God has made him both Lord and Christ. What has Simon Peter just done in a summarized way? He has taken the keys that have been given to the church. He's taken the message of the gospel in the presence of the crowd. And he has swung open the kingdom of heaven to all those who repent, believe, and are baptized. And that was exactly the reaction of the crowd. They said, what must we do? Simon said, well, here's the keys. Repent, believe, and be baptized. And what happened? 3,000 believers were added to their number that day. What number? The number of those who affirmed Christ as Savior. They became affirmed, recognized confessors of Christ. They became members of the church. I want to talk about church membership. There's a case for it. Later, the same thing happened to the Gentiles who heard that the kingdom of heaven was being opened even to them. And they came and they believed. Brothers and sisters, we we must not look around this city or this state or this country or this world and conclude that there are some places where the doors are just shut to the gospel. The Lord is not concerned with doors. Why? Because he is the door. And he has given us the key. And he has given us the key. So that we could present it to all those who throw away their keys. All of those who cease trying to, to pick the, the lock by their own efforts. All of those who try to enter some other way. And he said, come to him in repentance and faith. And by this confession, the Lord Jesus has promised that he will expand his church. 
the church of Christ will grow and expand. And we are given this picture, which we'll read later in the book of Revelation, wherein the church expands to the four corners of the world, to all of the earth, where there is not one person who does not worship and love God, where he is our God and we are his people. And that's the goal. That's the, the, the end game, if you will, of what Christ has planned for his church. The doors of the gospel can never be closed as long as we have the keys to the door. And Christ has given us those keys. Well, we can't wait around for someone to open the door. You've been given the keys. Someone may say, well, I'm not really good at personal evangelism. The key's in your pocket. You know the gospel. And if you don't know the gospel, tell someone who you love. Tell someone who is a, a, a member of a church or who knows the gospel well, I'm going to share the gospel with you. Tell me where I might be wrong. Tell me where I can improve in sharing the gospel. I was so encouraged yesterday. My brother Tony sent me a video that someone had sent him about the gospel and said, hey, listen to this. And we both were able to listen to it. And we both said, it's not too bad. There's a few things that we might change here and there, but but not too bad. Well, that's two brothers that are both examining the gospel and saying, yes, that's a positive uh, presentation of the gospel. We should do that more often. Share the gospel with someone here. Hey, I want to practice. Tell me where I, where I might do better. Don't be embarrassed by that. That should be encouraging. That's what we're here for, right? We shouldn't walk around presenting or acting as though we know it all or have it all. We don't. Let someone help you. Use the keys that God has given you. Practice again. The gospel. Here's the last thing I want to say before I move on to the next point. When was the last time you shared the gospel with someone? Oh, I know that we have been kind of quarantined and we've been not allowed to be engaged with people. I get that. But make it a goal. Make it a goal this week. Make it one of your prayers that the Lord would provide for you an opportunity to share the gospel and that you would take advantage of it when the opportunity presents itself. Make it a goal maybe this week or this month. I at least want to share the gospel with one person this week or one person this month. We'll talk more about why in just a few moments. Thirdly, and these last three points are going to be very short. Jesus, who is Lord of the church, calls us to come and to die. Verse 24 and 25. Oh, back here. Verse 24. Then Jesus says to his disciples, if anyone wishes to come after me, he must deny himself and take up his cross and follow me. For whoever wishes to save his life will lose it, but whoever loses his life for my sake will find it. For what will it profit a man if he gains the whole world and forfeits his soul? Or what will a man give in exchange for his soul? For the Son of Man is going to come in the glory of his Father with his angels and will repay every man according to his deeds. Simon Peter hears these words. As Jesus speaks them to all of his disciples, you, if you're going to follow after me, if you are going to be my disciple, you must die. The Lord who calls those who would be his disciples to follow him and claim him as their savior, they must plant their footsteps where the steps of Christ have walked, bearing the cross. Those who Christ calls and those who have been given the grace to respond to that call, they are called to come and to die. 
The Lord said that in losing your life, you'll find life. But if you are seeking to keep and preserve your life, you are going to lose it. If you are concerned only with your personal consumption with life here, you will lose your life. The disciples faced this reality on one occasion. And they responded in Matthew chapter 19. I'd like you to to look at that again. Matthew chapter 19. Listen to this conversation. Then Peter said to him, Behold, we have left everything and followed you. What will there be for us? The disciples literally left everything. They literally walked away from their life as they knew it. And Peter's question is, what will we get in return? You ever asked that? I was cooking yesterday, which I do often. And I'm 40, going to be 41. And I said to myself, if the Lord is kind to me, I might have 30 more years on this, this earth. What am I going to do with it? Because then it's over. What kind of life am I going to live? What will, and I started to ask myself, what will Jesus give me now in those 30 years? And I completely did not even consider what will be mine in the life to come. I said to myself, I've only got 30 years left. This is me cutting a piece of meat and saying to myself, almost in a panic, it's almost over. Why do I say that? Because 40 has gone by like that. And if I've only got 30 more left, it's going to feel a lot faster than these past 40. And Jesus said to him, and he says to all of us, Truly I say to you that those who have followed me in the regeneration when the Son of Man comes or when the Son of Man will sit on his glorious throne, you also will sit upon 12 thrones, judging the 12 tribes of Israel. And here's for us. And everyone who has left houses or brothers or sisters or father or mother or children or farms for my name's sake will receive many times as much and will inherit eternal life. But many who are first will be last. And the last will be first. We have to say to ourselves, there is so much in store for us as believers that God has promised us that go beyond cars that we want, that go beyond houses that we want, that go beyond educations that we want, that go beyond anything that we can imagine in this life that we could want That Christ has said, there's so much better. Anything that we have seen to have given up for the Lord, He has laid up for us lasting blessings in return. Lasting blessings. But they own the life that Christ has promised us to come, not necessarily in this one. And I think that's, that, that's apparent or, or appropriate, isn't it? For Christ to say, you will receive blessings. But they're in the life to come. 
And maybe it was so that we would not fix our eyes and our attention and all of our energies and all of our efforts just in this life alone. So we would not look to the temporal blessings that are just here, but have our mind continually fixed on what is ours there. And let's not be confused. We do receive great blessings here and now, don't we? We receive the gift of salvation. We receive the gift of faith. We have received the gift of the Holy Spirit, the gift of adoption. We, we have received the gift of fellowship with Christ and His church. We have been gifted brothers and sisters. We have been gifted to know the mysteries of the will of God. This is all Ephesians chapter 1. And we can go on and on and on. But there is more to come in the life that Christ has promised us. And little ones... I know that you're young now and you can't even think being an adult. And some of you may say, I'll get serious about this God stuff when I get their age, old like them. Your life will be here today and gone tomorrow. And what will your tomorrow be? Will your tomorrow be with Christ? Or will your tomorrow be separated from Christ? Parents, ask your kids often, do you think that you are a believer? Do you know that you will go to heaven one day? Do you know that you will be with Christ one day and why? Christ has never disguised or withheld the fact that those who follow him must take up their cross and die. The cross kills. And the manner in which the cross kills is by asphyxiation. Taking our breath away. And there are times in our lives as Christian disciples when that is exactly what our walk with Christ will do. It will take our breath away. What do I mean by that? It will cause us to stop arguing with Jesus. To do what Simon Peter should have done. Close your mouth. I'm reading through this and sometimes I just want to say to Peter, Peter, just stop. Stop, Peter. Close your mouth. Stop arguing. That's the crucified life. Where we say to the Lord Jesus, enough of me and more of you. When we say, as John the Baptist said, I must decrease so that he must increase. That is the crucified life. And you and I need to ask ourselves every single day, is this me or is this him? Am I still talking? Am I still arguing with him back and forth? Or do I need to do as every faithful disciple has done, close my mouth and take up my cross. As the Lord opens up the pathway, He wants us to walk out our following taking up our cross, yes, but, but listen to how He says it. If anyone would come after me, for the person who says, this burden of taking up his, my cross, it's too weighty. Taking up my cross is too difficult. I can't do it, Lord. 
Remember that Jesus said, come after me, not before me. Christ has gone before us. He has done for you and I what you and I could never do for ourselves. Christ has done it. Come after him, not beside him, not in front of him, after him. And as we come after him, Christ will sustain us by the way that he has prepared before us. John Calvin said, God has so constituted the church of the Lord Jesus Christ from the very beginning that the cross has been the way to victory and death has been the way to life. One theologian has said, when a man, when Christ calls a man, he bids him to come and die. And my dear friends, there is no real fruitfulness in our lives or in our churches where there is no real cross-bearing. Take up your cross and follow him. One theologian said, if you will bear the cross willingly, it will bear you. Fourth and finally, Christ is Lord and he will come at the end of the age. Listen to this. To judge our service. To judge our service. And that's the final verse there in 27, or toward the end there in verse 27, where the Lord says, For the Son of Man is going to come in the glory of his Father with his angels and will, listen to this, repay every man according to his deeds. Repay. You may think that the Lord may have said, would have said, condemn for what they have done. But as a sinner, we have this instinctive fear of the judgment of God. But Christ has said that he will come and repay. That he will come with rewards. Rewards that are given to those who are bearing their cross. Given to those for all of the good that they have done. We don't think about that, do we? That when we are with Christ, that it will not just be a matter of, look, I'm in heaven. Christ has promised us rewards as well. Christ has promised us good things beyond just as if that were not enough. Eternal life, he's promised us rewards. And imagine those rewards that we are setting up in heaven as we are faithfully sharing and defending the gospel as we are living in and amongst uh, the marketplace, being kind to others, yes, but being faithful witnesses of the Lord Jesus Christ and not relenting, not bowing our knee, but standing firm. Imagine the gifts for you being hospitable. Imagine the gifts for you giving to the poor and doing so in the name of Christ. Imagine the gifts for the times that you have labored in prayer over the saints and over the lost. There will be rewards. And you say, what? These are just the things that, that I should do. Yes, and as you do them in obedience to the one who has commanded them, Christ has said, and I will reward you for obeying. Isn't that incentive? Don't we all want to go home, home now and pray? Jesus said that whatever you do to the least of these, you've done it unto me, and he will reward you. That doesn't mean that you have your best life now. That means that your best life is to come. When this is all over, 
And God shows us the, the lines of blessings that have come through your cross-bearing. You and I will be amazed at all of the things that he has used to bless others. And you have no idea. You have no idea the ways in which you are a faithful witness to Christ, that you are affecting other people's lives to the glory of God, and you will be rewarded for it. And that in your obedience, Christ is also building. I remember taking my wife, who was my fiance at the time, in closing, downtown after a date that we had. We were walking around near Central Park. And this was before Central Park is what Central Park is today. Uh, Central Park at the time was under construction. There were gates surrounding the park. And those gates uh, had what normally gates will have as kind of... Uh, I, almost like blankets covering the, the gates so that you could not see what was behind the fence. Uh, me being the kind of person that I am, I went behind the gate and brought my wife with me, who was my fiance again at the time, and we were able to see what was being developed behind the gates. It's amazing. Now when we pass by, we always say to each other, remember when we walked back there? My wife and I also got married in that same park in the museum right behind there. And if we could be given a, a picture behind the veil of what Christ is doing through our obedience, through our worship, through our taking up our cross, to see what will be the end result, I think that we would smile ear to ear at the way in which God is using all of us to build his kingdom. But here's the blessing. We actually have been given a picture behind the veil. Jesus actually has taken us by the hand, as I did with my wife, all of those years ago and said, come with me and let me show you. And I want you to see it in closing. Revelation chapter 21. The very last book of the Bible, Revelation chapter 21. Parents, can I encourage you to, if you are discipling your kids and, and raising them up in the fear and admonition of the Lord, can I encourage you to, to encourage your children to bring a Bible so that when their pastors say, turn to a particular book, they can get used to turning to a particular book and learning how to use the Bible for themselves, so that this is not just mommy and daddy or grandma and grandpa's religion, but that it can be theirs as well. Revelation chapter 21 and verse 10. Here is a picture behind the veil. And he carried me away in the spirit to a great and high mountain and showed me the holy city, Jerusalem, coming down out of heaven from God, having the glory of God her brilliance was like the very, was like a very costly stone, as a stone of crystal clear jasper. It had a great and high wall with twelve gates, and the twelve gates were twelve angels, and names were written on them, which are the names of the twelve tribes of the sons of Israel. There were three gates on the east, and three gates on the north, and three gates on the south, and three on the west. And the wall of the city had twelve foundation stones. And on them were twelve names of the twelve apostles of the Lamb. 
If you go through verse 15 through 21, you'll see how beautiful the stones in this great temple, in this great kingdom are. But then I'd like to conclude with verse 22 to 27. And I saw no temple in it, but the Lord God, the Almighty and the Lamb are its temple. And the city had no need of a sun or a moon to shine on it. For the glory of God has illumined it, has illumined it. And its lamp is the Lamb. The nations will walk by its light and the kings of the earth will bring their glory into it in the daytime for there will be no night there. Its gates will never be closed and they will bring the honor and glory of the nations into it and nothing unclean and no one who practices abomination and lying shall ever come into it but only those whose names are written in the Lamb's book of life. And you can go on into the river. You can go on to the tree of life. You can go on to the Son of God who says, and I'm coming. The thing that you have just read, I'm coming to bring you to. I think our only prayer would be, come, Lord Jesus, come quickly. Christ is building his church. Christ is defending his church. Christ will expand his church to that great day when we will see that people from every nation, tribe, and tongue will be worshiping together the Lamb of God. That's a picture behind the veil. And we are headed there. Let's pray.